Podcast. Nick Hales is a resident partner, and Joshua McGowan is here to make you laugh, challenge your mind, and help you build a foundation. This is the Dynasty Folk, presented by the Dynasty Football Wheel. Joshua Johnson, with me as always from the great state of Hawaii, Nick. Hail to the Redskins, Mike. Nick, what's up, buddy? Oh, not much, Josh. A little bummed out that we only have two games this weekend. You know, all four games last weekend ended up being pretty good. So, I don't know, maybe could the NFL just have the Steelers and Bengals play round four on Saturday just for fun? Uh, yeah, how about, uh, uh, tackle, football, no pads, how about that, that'd be fun. Um, uh, yeah, uh, just, what well, guess, excuse me, we have a wonderful show planned for you today, even though there's a lot of things not working behind the scenes, don't, uh, but don't worry about that, I shouldn't even say that. Uh, Alex Kirby is stopping by, he has an amazing new book, all about the, uh, St. Louis Rams, the greatest show on turf which I have not finished yet, but I figured I better have them on because I already have so many questions. Um, but it's an, an excellent book. He's actually returning to the podcast. He's written books about the Chip Kelly offense and the, the Gus Melzone offense as well. He also did a few breakdowns of every single play from the Super Bowl last year as well as every single play from the National Championship game last year. So maybe we can look forward to some more of those from Alex in the future. But, yeah, wonderful Wonderful stuff, real real deep X's and O's stuff, and we're going to get into it with Alex just a little bit later. Looking forward to that. Uh, get to some divisional round thoughts here in a moment. Um, some trade reflection, a little bit dynasty dilemma as we pit uh, Tyler Lockett versus Jamison Crowder, uh, a dynasty, dynasty trade analysis. Uh, some prospect profiles, and of course it'll be uh, Nick Rance then after that, and then uh, Chuck Badaisi can stop by and get you some ATS picks, some over-unders, and we're also going to pick the final scores. That should be a lot of fun. So uh, looking forward to that. Nick, any any thoughts here on the uh, divisional round that was? Well, we'll start with the first game, uh, Kansas City and New England. You know, normally if your leading rusher has 16 yards in a playoff game, that's not a pretty good – that's not a good sign. But the Patriots just aren't a normal team. Uh, Jeremy Macklin was tied for sixth on the Chiefs and targets. You know, obviously he wasn't close to 100%. I believe he was out of the game towards the end too. Uh, Gronkowski was rumored to be nursing injuries heading into the game, but it sure didn't look like it. He got seven of his eight targets for 83 yards and two scores. And, you know, the Chiefs may have shown the problem with having a game manager type quarterback back. You know, Alex Smith didn't have any turnovers, but when you're down by two scores with six minutes left and it takes you five minutes to get the first score, that's just completely unacceptable, right? Oh, most definitely, yeah. That's not uh, not good. I mean, I know they made it look good there at the end, but yeah, maybe uh, you know, all there was so much talk about uh, Marcus Peters and he won the Defensive Rookie of the Year yet, yesterday, but maybe he should have covered Gronk. Maybe that would have been 
the ultimate challenge there for Mr. Peters. I would have liked to like to see that matchup, but uh, uh, all in all, I don't know why I ever think about picking against New England at home, but I do, and uh, then that's, that's how they treat me. So, and I was all—you can tell that I'm not a Vegas guy or a line setter because I was all ready to jump on New England again this week uh, because I figured they would just be uh, dogs since they're on the road, but of course they're favored in Denver. Um, so I, I don't, I just still don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. Like I said, that's why I'm not a Vegas insider. Um, moving forward though, what do you, what do we think about um, the social media reaction to the Green Bay Arizona game was, was pretty fun. I thought um, uh, it seems like immediately after it, the game got over people on Twitter and Facebook were saying uh, one of two things. It's like either this was the greatest game they'd ever seen or that the refs were garbage. Now I was just thinking to myself, Nick, how, how can that be? How can those two things happen in the same game? I mean, I guess it just goes to show how we, uh, how we uh, treat games like that. Don't you, don't you just, and everybody's just got their own, their own opinion on such matters. Don't you think? Well, that, and I think we're just so accustomed to seeing uh, questionable refereeing decisions happen that we just kind of accept that as part of the game now. But, I mean, this was just a heck of a game. It had pretty much everything. You know, a longtime solid player, Carson Palmer, getting his first playoff win. Uh, you got the backup player stepping up in a big way following an injury with Jeff Janis, seven catches, 145 yards, and two scores. Uh, Michael Floyd catching two touchdowns, one of them a deflected pass for a score. Uh, the Hail Mary at the end, a future Hall of Famer, Larry Fitzgerald having a huge game, including the game-winning touchdown. And I mean, this was just an instant classic, right? Um, yeah, you know, um, I'll get to the game tie and drive in a minute. But since you since you mentioned uh, Hail Larry there, uh, you know, not that not to take anything away from them because that was a, an awesome seventy-yard play, and I, I thought the game was just going to be over at that point. But um, how about the play to win it, the shovel pass? That's not a not a play you see very often at the at the NFL level. I know a lot of high schools and probably most more more so colleges have that kind of in their repertoire. But that's not necessarily a play that is uh, bam bam. You know, if he if Larry drops that ball and Green Bay picks it up and goes back for a touchdown, I mean, we're talking obviously obviously a different story. But I, I was just a little surprised by that. Uh, that play call, and I think obviously Green Bay was too, because it was uh, uh, he's just squirted in the end zone after that. But uh, certainly not a play that you try in the cold. But it's um, just an interesting play for them. And now I haven't watched a lot of Arizona film, or not enough Arizona film to know if this is a play that they use very often. But I just thought that was a that was quite the call in that situation. Um, but how about the the game winning, or excuse me, the game tying drive by Green Bay? I'm pretty sure I. I having some difficulties, like I said, behind the scenes here, but I'm pretty sure on that game-winning game tying drive, excuse me, Aaron Rodgers actually threw for over 100 yards. Um, I think they started at the 15, so it was technically an 85-yard drive, but then he got sacked, and then of course, he threw about 4th and 20 from their own 5. He just threw that absolute most beautiful throw I think I've ever seen, the yard gain, and then the touchdown was like a 40-yard touchdown. So he actually threw for 100 yards on over 100 yards on one drive. I think it was actually like 105. Uh, but yeah, what a couple, a uh, couple of great throws by Rogers. That like, like I said, that fourth down one was absolutely amazing. 
Um, and the touchdown was so crazy when you saw that ball coming down. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's going to land right between two Arizona guys. And then next thing you know, you see this flash, and it's Jeff Janis just falling just falling into the end zone and uh, making the catch. What a what an amazing game. Uh, but uh, any you have any more thoughts there on that game, Nick? Uh, no, I think we pretty much covered everything on that one. Yeah, just uh, that that fourth and twenty throw though. Wow, what a what a what a just just a absolute seed for, for probably like a sixty sixty five yard throw. I just cannot uh, believe that. What did you feel about uh, Carolina and Seattle? That was kind of a, an interesting tale of two halves. Yeah, I mean you hit the nail on the head there. Tail of two halves. The Panthers jumped out to the thirty-one nothing lead at halftime. Uh, two touchdowns for Jonathan Stewart. Luke Keekley had the interception for a touchdown. But you know, just like what happened against the Giants earlier this year, the team nearly blew a huge lead. Uh, to me, the inability to close is a huge red flag uh, for, as far as the Panthers are concerned. You know, if you leave an open window for offenses like the Cardinals or the Patriots, you're going to lose those games. Uh, so, you, you know, you have to figure that Cam Newton needs to do more against Arizona this week than the 161 yards and one score and only three yards on the ground that he had against Seattle. But at least Jonathan Stewart looked good in his return from his injury. Uh, 19 carries for 106 yards. That bodes well moving forward. Uh, yeah, he, he did look very good. I was a little surprised by that, but they um, – <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, that game got a little close for comfort, and um, – Gosh, I hate to pick both road teams this week, but that's kind of how I'm feeling right now. So we'll see what happens when Chuck stops by. But, uh, yeah, they took a huge bite there in the first half and uh, just seemed like they kind of sat on, the, sat on the second half. And I guess you can't blame them. When you're up by, you know, essentially five scores, it's not not necessarily the worst thing to do, but it uh, almost, you know, certainly almost cost them to not try to do something more in that uh, second half. But, um yeah, you're gonna you're gonna expect a lot more from them, and I expect uh, Arizona, especially, to challenge them a lot more. What um, backing up, Nick? What what do you think about? Uh, just want to back up for one second. Should Arizona be at all concerned about David Johnson? What did he have like 23 yards? And I think eight of those yards came on the came on the last time he touched the ball. So a third of those yards probably on one play. Not a not an overly impressive. Uh, playoff debut by him should they be concerned about that you think well anytime there's a rookie that has a bad game this late in the year you worry about that rookie wall but he's played so well up to this point that I think you can you can continue to trust him for at least one more week because I believe Chris Johnson would be back to the Super Bowl if he's if they make it that far oh really I hadn't heard that Did, wasn't he put on IR though I could have swore that he was on uh, IR, but it was with a it was with the designation to return, and the earliest oh, he would wow. be able to uh, technically return is the Super Bowl, but he said this week that he'd be ready to play if he was eligible this week. Wow, interesting storyline developing there. Um, yeah, we'll see what uh, they do against Carolina. I, mean, I hope that game isn't disappointing because that just looks to be such a great matchup. Um, I know the big news is the big quarterback duel there in Denver, you know, the how many times they've played each other now, but I think oh, that other game should be very fun to watch, especially considering, you know, two quarterbacks that have never never been to the Super Bowl before, and that's, that's just, yeah, should be, should be a good one down there, and I guess I'd expect for uh, Arizona to challenge them, challenge them, especially on those deep balls, like to see John Brown get down the seam, and it'll be interesting to see who for uh, Carolina matches up with um, 
David Johnson if they kind of flare him out of the backfield as well. Um, I I know it's kind of a big name, Nick, but what did you think about all this? You know, there's so much news. Obviously, they're just reporting injuries, but you know, there was so much. Uh, I think it was overly produced that uh, Jared Allen's got a broken foot. I mean, is he? I know he's been playing for this team for what ten games, but he's not a huge part of this defense. I mean, he's not obviously not not we ask. I mean. Have you? I guess I don't necessarily have been following how many sacks or whatever he's got since he's gone to Carolina, but he's certainly not a huge part of this defense. Would you agree? I would agree, and like you, I don't know how many sacks he's had this year. I couldn't tell you exactly how big of an impact he's had, but you just have to figure at his age and, you know, coming in midseason, you know, having to learn a new playbook, he's probably not, like you said, an impact player like a Thomas Davis, Luke Keekley, somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's just basically like a situational pass rusher for them. So they got they got people that can step up in his absence. I'm not too worried about that. I think just because it's the name recognition, that's probably why people are a little bit uh, overzealous about that. What? Okay. So what do we think about this uh, this last game here? Um, you know, one thing lost in this, and we got Alex here in line a couple minutes, Nick. But uh, one thing lost in this game that maybe wasn't heavily reported, a real injury was, you know, I, I think at the, after the first quarter, maybe maybe not quite after the first quarter, maybe maybe um, not quite, but uh, they had um, it been reported that, uh, excuse me, Arizona, sorry, the Denver offense had like 15, total, 15 or 20 total yards, and their return man had 42 yards. Uh, Omar Bolden, I think his name is. Now he is out for the year. So that's, I mean, he was a, he's a he's a big part of their team, um, and that's it'll be interesting to see how that affects their offense going forward. But what do you think about that game there, Nick? Well, like you mentioned, the Broncos offense kind of struggled a little bit. And Peyton Manning, uh, 21 for 37, only 222 yards. But his receivers did drop, I think, seven passes. So uh, if they can fix that, that'll help uh, this week. Uh, even without Antonio Brown, Pittsburgh still had 311 yards through the air. Martavis Bryant, nine catches for 154 yards plus a 40-yard run. But Pittsburgh could only score one touchdown. I think, you know, Denver's defense is a big reason why. Uh, they're great all year long, number one defense in sacks. And the pressure they put on Ben Roethlisberger, was, I think, key. They only had three sacks, but they hurried a bunch of other throws, and I think that'll be the key again this week is if they can get enough pressure on Tom Brady with just four pass rushers and not have to commit extra blitzers, uh, that's that's going to be the key if they want to win this week. Okay, well, I do apologize to people, but I said something wrong with our live feed, so if you're listening live, you didn't hear me say that. <laughs> uh, but uh, we still are recording. And uh, so uh, enjoy uh, if you're if you're downloading this. Uh, but uh, one thing, yeah, another thing that I, I found surprising is there was a punt early on in that game where um, they missed it. Or excuse me, the Pittsburgh had to punt out of their own end zone, the into the wind. Their punter kind of shanked it, so Denver had the ball at the 33 yard line, and um, they only got a field goal out of it. I mean, you got 33 yards in front of your home crowd and you can't punch the ball in the end zone. I mean, that's, that's, that's not, not good news, uh, but we have Alex Kirby on the line here. Alex, Alex, are you there? Yes. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Very welcome back to the dynasty pulse podcast. Uh, pleasure to have you back. Uh, 
one of our one of our most well respected guests in terms of uh what what you do with uh your books we certainly uh enjoy them so thank you so much for for coming back to join us today um why don't you just kind of tell people um maybe where you got the idea here for this new book and and kind of how you got started going well uh it's something that I've always been interested in i I've been interested in the uh the Mike Martz offense, the greatest show on turf, as the book is called, available on Amazon right now. Um, I've been interested in that for a while because I thought it was kind of a, uh, an interesting bridge between an era where the West Coast offense had really flourished in the NFL and still does to a large degree. But before you saw the influence of all of this spread offense coming in from the college level and kind of affecting the game in various ways, um, you know, from the mid-2000s to now. So it was kind of an in-between era where you had a lot of talented guys on a football team, a great offensive mind in Mike Martz, and they won a lot of football games during that time. It was something that I'd been wanting to uh, check out. And uh, any time I do one of these books, it's more just a, a learning experience for me, and then I kind of put together what I find out and what I've learned and, and put it out there for other people to take a look at. Okay. Well, obviously, um, that's probably coming at, you know, this offense is coming up coming up during the height probably of uh, fantasy football getting big, and obviously it just gets bigger and bigger every year. So I'm sure a lot of people are were familiar with that team, and it's 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 fun to go back and just uh, kind of look at, at what what you were able to see with uh, with their playbooks. Um, I think – Obviously, Alex, it takes kind of a special offensive line to make this thing work. Um, but it did seem like kind of one of my major criticisms about this offense was the fact that Warner seemed to get left alone a lot to be crushed. Um, do you think that was kind of maybe the ultimate demise of this scheme? I mean, I know they had Orlando Pace and some other really good offensive linemen. Pace should be a Hall of Famer one of these years here. But obviously you need a special offensive line to make it work. But do you think the fact that the quarterback was left out there on an island a lot of the times was not not necessarily good for it moving forward? Well, you know, every offensive scheme has its strengths and weaknesses, and you're right. That's definitely one of the weaknesses, uh, at least in the way, you know, you, you often saw this team call plays uh, when Martz started as the offensive coordinator and ultimately took over as the head coach. Um, definitely Kurt Warner was a guy who took a lot of hits, not very, not well known for his mobility, obviously, but mm-hmm. I think if there was a guy who was going to run this offense, it, it was going to be Kurt Warner because of his quick release and because of his vision on the football field, he was able to get rid of the ball a lot quicker than a lot of other guys would have. So certainly uh, you saw the, this team go empty a lot of times, release Marshall Falk out of the backfield without ever blocking at all. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of, you know, pick your poison. So some teams uh, like to do that more than others, and the Rams were a team that liked to take chances in that way, and, it, and more often than not it worked out. Okay. Um, do you think with so much like a shotgun and kind of like pistol action nowadays, do you think the system maybe could translate a, a little bit better if the quarterback had maybe a little bit more time? Well, it's an interesting, uh, you know, dichotomy between going out of shotgun compared to going under center. There are advantages and disadvantages to both, and that's one thing I talked about in the book is that everybody's so eager to go shotgun these days, but the reality is that if you're under center, you get the ball, you have the ability at least to get the football out that much quicker. 
than you would have if you got to wait for the ball to get there, grab it, and then get your eyes on your target. So that might not seem like a big difference, but in the NFL where defenses are getting faster and faster each year, it's a big difference to be able to uh, you know, call the snap, get the ball right away, and get rid of it right away on a quick slant or a fade or something. Uh, gives it gives the defense that uh, less amount of time to react. So I think that's one of the advantages of going under center. Um, you know, obviously with shotgun, you can do uh, some things you can't do under center, like uh, the zone read, for example, and some other things like that. But um, it just depends really on, on on what kind of personnel you have and, and what you're comfortable with doing. And obviously, you know, the Rams had a lot of success with that. Uh, Nick, any questions there for Alex? Well, you mentioned the zone read, and I just pictured in my head Kurt Warner trying to run the, the read option play. That would have been a lot of fun. So uh, did the Rams not run a lot of shotgun back then? Uh, it was not a big part of what they did. Uh, they they certainly did have it in the playbook, and, and you would see it from time to time. But, um, you know, it's just interesting. We're in this era now, like you said, of shotgun, no huddle, you know, up-tempo teams. This is a team that huddled, you know, most of the time in between plays. It's something you don't see a lot of anymore. And they managed to still put up a huge amount of points. So I think that, um, like I said, there, there's advantages and disadvantages to everything. I think the bottom line is, and what I try to get across in whatever I'm doing, is that there's no one way to do things. It, it really is dependent on what you're comfortable with, what you know best, and, and if you can find answers for what the defense has given you. Um, interesting fact about Mike Martz. He's actually born in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where I'm from. So I just thought, I just thought I'd bring that up, but I'm sure Alex knew that already. Um, I'm sitting in Sioux Falls, South Dakota right now, but anyway, uh, sorry. Just, I just remembered that. I've been there a I couple of times, actually. Yeah. I've been oh, there a couple of times when I, when I was uh, coaching at Indiana state, we, uh, we went to play South Dakota oh. state and we would always stay in Sioux Falls. So yeah, been there a oh. few times. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so with uh with with do you think Marshall Folk was kind of like the uh linchpin of this scheme? I mean basically if he wasn't such a receiving threat it, it probably wouldn't have worked in a lot of facets, don't you think? Oh, I definitely think he played a big role and in, in fact if you go back and and look at a lot of what has been written since then about, you know, the Super Bowl where the Patriots beat the Rams, one of the things you'll find is that Bill Belichick told his team, you know, Warner, uh, not Warner, excuse me, Falk is the key to all this. You know, you got to find him on every play. They made sure to to hit him coming out of the backfield before they worried about any type of pass rush or anything like that. He was the safety valve. He was the, mo- he was the thing that – he was the player that Warner relied on the most in key situations. So if you take him away, I mean, certainly you still had a lot of talent on that team, but – Basically, it's just a matter of getting the quarterback out of his rhythm. And certainly, Marshall Falk played a huge, huge role in that. One of the greatest offensive weapons in the history of the NFL, for sure. Yeah, such a such a great dual threat, definitely. Uh, Nick, Nick, any any questions there? I uh, was just wondering if you know how much Mike Martz, after he moved on from St. Louis, changed his system uh, at all. If it's the different uh, when he was working with less talented players, or if he uh, tried to run the same thing? You know, I, I couldn't give you a specific answer on that. I do know that for the most part, um, it, it doesn't appear that he changed that much, although any good coach will change a little bit. But Martz is a guy that, that really had his way of doing things, and for better or for worse, you know, he, he would always try to, to to get players to into the roles that he had set for, for them. And so 
he did not end up having the success later on afterwards uh, that in, in other places that he had with the Rams. But then again, he didn't have, like you said, uh, nearly as much talent as he had. So, it, you know, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of dependent on one another. You know, good coaches need good players and vice versa. So I think there's a lot of merit to what he did. Um, and But the bottom line is players win games. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, we talked about Marshall Falk. I think he had the, the immense talent of Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt made so much of it possible too. Um, and I think, I think maybe some of that was, you know, evidenced by, you know, see, I know those two probably don't get a lot of respect in terms of probably overall, you know, they're not top 50 wide receivers of all time. But I think when you see Warner on other teams, like, like Nick talked about, you know, Martz's scheme, maybe not working elsewhere. Um, but when you see when you saw Warner with less receiver talent, he just wasn't as successful. I mean, those two were just such great, incredibly fast players, but just great receivers, you know, in in their own rights too. And I think that's obviously another another big part of it. Even though they didn't u- utilize the tight end, those those three weapons they had just kind of made a lot of a lot of it go. Don't you think so, Alex? Uh, for sure. I mean, like you said, it, it is unusual. That in this uh, this new era, uh, over the last couple decades, the, that team, that offense is kind of, I don't want to say been forgotten, but it's kind of been put on on the back burner, if you will. When people talk about the great teams of all time and the great offenses of all time, that's for sure one of them that doesn't really get the respect it deserves. And that's that's another reason why I wanted to kind of go back and write about it, um, is because it's not something that a lot of people talk about, um, and and I think it's important that people kind of get the full context when you talk about great offenses in the history of pro football. And that's one of them. So then your next book you should consider, maybe you have an answer for this, but I got one for you. The, uh, the fun and gun with more, with Warren moon and Ernest Givens, the, the late early nineties <laughs> Houston Oilers. Oh, that was, that was fun. And then, you know, of course, Ernest Gibbons you're, you're actually, slides. You're, you're actually the second person who's who's suggested that to me, um, and so I, I I do I do have several you know I do have some notes written down about that sort of thing, um, and I've got a couple different projects I'm working on, including uh, uh, another play-by-play breakdown of the national championship game that was just played uh, a while a couple days ago. So that's coming, but uh, yeah, I've got a few things I'm working on. Very cool, yeah. I actually mentioned at the top of the show that you would probably be doing that again, and and there you go, you're you're on it. Um, uh, Nick, any any other thoughts there? Well, Mike Marks, of course, is a very innovative coach, but I was just wondering uh, who are some of his coaching influences, if you know. Well, it's interesting. You know, you, you go back, and, and it's kind of st- all started with Sid Gilman and the way he put together some of the most uh, early prolific uh, passing games in the NFL. Mike Martz really learned a lot from guys under him as well. And, and obvious, obviously, you look at some of the schemes, you know, I talk about in the book, there are just schemes that no matter what quote unquote offense you're running, that you're going to run no matter what. And one of the, you know, and a lot of that came from Bill Walsh and other coaches like that. So it, it all kind of guys put their own spin on things, but at the same time, there, there are things that everybody runs really well if you want to have a successful passing game. Um, 
I had one kind of one more thought here too, and, and this is something you really touched on in the book. And like I said, um, I don't know if you heard me say, Alex, I actually haven't finished the book, but I've gotten to the point where I just had so many questions. I'm just like, well, I'm going to have to have Alex on now because if we could just have a whole other podcast, I'm just about this book, I think, when I finish it. Um, but I really love how you talk about how how much deception and how many big plays they could pull off with kind of basically just you know, your vanilla, two running back, two wide receiver, tight end. And then you also kind of go on to talk about, you know, how like a simple man in motion can reveal so much about what the defense is going to try to do against you. Can you maybe just elaborate on that or say it more eloquently than I did there? <laughs> well, I mean, March was Mike March was famous for having these huge playbooks every week and a bunch of stuff that his guys had to learn. But the bottom line is, you know, he was really finding a lot of different ways to run the same 10 to 15 concepts for the most part. You know, he had different wrinkles in there as well. But it's all about disguising, like you said, deception using motion movement before the snap and finding different ways to line up uh, that the defense hasn't seen before. And obviously it makes it a whole lot easier when you've got all those great players on offense as well. So it all kind of runs together, but for sure, for sure, he, he prided himself on the ability to confuse defenses. And that makes it easier when you, when you huddle after every play, you can get together as a, as a group of guys and, and have a long drawn out, you know, play call where you tell everybody where to run and where to move before the snap. So that, that was a big reason as well. Okay. Uh, Nick, any other questions or thoughts? Uh, the slot receiver, Aza Hirakim, uh, in 99 averaged over 18 yards per catch. Was he just a guy that was kind of fortunate to be, you know, working with guys like Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt, or was he uh, kind of a key to that offense as well? Well, I think, you know, when you when you get into those kind of questions, I think you can uh, – the bottom line is that there are so many talented players in the NFL, for one thing. You get to that level, there everybody's an athlete. So, for sure, he was a talented player. Um, but I, I don't know that – I'm not going to say that without him, the offense wouldn't have worked, if that makes sense. I mean, he, he, he definitely added something. He brought another dimension to it. He gave the defense one more thing to worry about. Um, but like everybody else, I mean, he, he kind of played his role, and he was very good at it. Um, and, and I'm sure he would have done pretty well in a lot of other schemes as well. He's just a talented football player. Um, so, like I said, ta- good coaches and good players go hand in hand. One needs the other. Can you think, and maybe just this is kind of a long shot question here, but can you think in just what you've, you've researched and what you've written so far, like maybe uh, a defensive scheme in history that would have matched up, you know, kind of pound for pound pretty good against these guys? Or um, As far as a scheme, I, I don't know. I, I, think my, I think the thing I always try to get across is that players win games. I mean, it's easier for me to go and draw up a bunch of diagrams and because mm-hmm. it's fun to talk about. But as far as scheme, I think as long as you've got a good good players with a decent pass rush on defense, you're going to have a chance. And I think the, the 2001 Patriots team proved that. I mean, that was not a team with a lot of, quote-unquote, big-time playmakers on defense, but they were just really well coached, and they ended up basically shocking the world. So I think there's a lot – I think it just depends on, you know, the, the players you have at your disposal and the coaching talent you have at your, at your disposal. Certainly the 85 Bears would have given them a run for their money, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and you're right; it is fun to talk about your stuff. Uh, I, I, I wish I, every time I'm reading the book, I, I want to like, like, you know, message you or to just talk to somebody else who remembers it. It's, it's, yeah, it's. I, I feel like when I'm reading your books, it's just like 
I just feel like I want to share it with so many people because I mean, like so many people get so so much out of it. it. Just I mean, it's just so fun. Even if you're not, you know, a real coach or an X's and O guys, you know, I never coached football. You know, as close as I've ever come is just picking my plays on Madden. But it's it's so fun to just sit there and <laughs> see see how see how you see things and and you it obviously translates uh, very well. So so I certainly enjoy your stuff and look forward to the to the new new book there. Um. I guess just one one closing thought: Is there anything that you maybe were surprised you learned about this Rams offense that you just you didn't think they they did? Well, I'll just go back to what I said earlier. I mean, I think that the surprising thing for me and a lot of other people who really take a look at this is the I won't say simplicity just because of the amount of stuff that those guys had to learn, but there there are a lot of common themes between all the concepts. And it just kind of reinforces, you know, where I've what I've heard and learned everywhere else where I've gone and, and learned football is that the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, your guys need to know where they're supposed to go. And you know, you can draw up whatever you want on the chalkboard, but if your guys can't remember it, you guys can't execute it under pressure, um, then it's pretty much worthless. So the bottom line is that the the Rams had a, a lot of different, you know, fun pass, passing schemes to talk about to break down, to analyze. But at the end of the day, they really had, you know, a few schemes that they relied on when the game was on the line. Uh, and I think that's a successful key to any good uh, offense. Okay. Well, you'll have to let me know when that new book comes out. Do you have a date yet? Uh, no set date yet, but uh, hopefully sometime in the next month. Okay, and that's gonna be, he's going to be breaking down every play from the national championship game. So you've been working your tail off, probably, since that, huh? Uh, Absolutely. And, yep. and that's yeah, sorry. And that's this year, the Clemson versus uh, Alabama. So, uh, uh, how about that onside kick? Have you ever seen a a? I don't know. That play was just absolutely brilliant to me. I mean, Clemson had no shot at that ball. Yeah, I, you know what? It was. Uh... It was just a great, great uh, adjustment by Saban. You know, he talked about it after the game. They just, uh, as soon as the game started, when they first kicked off, he wanted to make sure they were going to have it, and Clemson lined up the way they thought. So he said, well, we knew we were going to have it if we needed it later on in the game. And you know what? The players executed, and it was a great job by the coaches. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming, Alex. Uh, we, we appreciate you, and uh, we'll let you get back to work on that book so we can uh, dive into it. All right, thanks, guys. Yeah, take care. All right, Nick, well, let's uh, move on here. Uh, we didn't get to this last week, Nick, but do you have any uh, have any more trade reflections? Um, well, one trade that pops into mind uh, off the top of my head was when I traded A.J. Green and a first-round pick for Antonio Brown and a third-round pick. Uh, that was Trade is definitely one to help propel me to win a championship in that league. Yeah, yeah, that's um. Oh, that was the league, the league that you won. Very cool. Um. Now, uh, now moving forward, do you think uh, you, your team's going to be uh, strong too? In terms of, are you going to be able to, you know, uh, keep keep that run going with, and not uh, miss that first round pick too much? Um, well, especially given the fact that it's the 12th pick in the draft, uh, I'm not going to probably miss it very much. I I need some things to fall into place at running back to be successful moving forward, and hopefully Doug Baldwin can continue the, the role he's 
started towards the end of this last year. But, yeah, I'm fairly confident that I'll, I'll at least be a playoff team. Okay, okay. Um, well, this is kind of an embarrassing thing for me to talk about, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway. We all make mistakes, and uh, I'm going to own up to it. So during our draft, during one of our rookie drafts last year, um, I think Nick was a little surprised early on that I didn't go. Uh, I went wide receiver, wide receiver. I went um, Kevin White, Bouchard Perryman, who played exactly zero NFL snaps uh, this year. And Nick was a little surprised I didn't go David Johnson. But I, I really liked the talent pool at running back, so I opted to wait. But then later on in the draft, I don't know if I was necessarily trying to stick it to you, Nick, but I thought, I was like, I just need some running back depth here. So I had I had a pick, and so I went ahead and took um, Cameron Artis Payne, but then or I, was, I, had, I wanted to get the pick in front of me, too, so I needed to make a trade, and I – I really wasn't positive that Danny Woodhead was going to bounce back, so I sent I sent Danny Woodhead a fifth round and a fifth round pick for that draft. So this is the fourth round. I said Danny Woodhead and a fifth rounder plus my fourth rounder next year, all just to get that just to get that pick so I could have two picks before you pick because I knew you liked both of the guys and I ended up taking Josh Robinson after that pick. So also, when it was all said and done, I traded Danny Woodhead a fifth and a fourth for Josh Robinson, who spent most of the season on the Indianapolis Colts practice squad. So, and uh, we all know how Danny Woodhead bounced back. So interesting, interesting how things uh, can, uh, can play out there. And I guess, you know, the tale of that trade is uh, don't get too Ricky happy. Like uh, dynasty Dan said last week, don't you think? Oh yeah, definitely. It's a, definitely a cautionary tale. Yeah, um, but I haven't given up. I haven't given up on Josh Robinson. Um, he's, he's had some fumbling issues, but I, I think uh, I think he can bounce back. Um, so uh, we'll look look forward to that. And you know, I'll be a very happy man if that happens. And I know I wasn't the only one. I know some people were throwing this summer. Some people were throwing like second round picks out to get him. So uh, let's get to our uh, dynasty dilemma. As we this week we're doing Tyler Lockett versus uh, James. Jameson Crowder. Um, my turn to go first, so I chose um, Tyler Lockett. Um, let me just get to the music here. Time for Dynasty Trade Analysis. All right, all right, all right. working great this week, and I played the wrong clip. Um, but anyway, Jamison Crowder versus Tyler Lockett. I chose Crowder. Were you surprised by that, Nick? Uh, very surprised, yes. No. Oh, very surprised. I kind of thought you'd be. I didn't think I'd bury it. But anyway, so last offseason, I quickly dismissed Crowder, who stands five foot eight, as a player who was simply too small to survive in the NFL. I thought maybe he would have some actual NFL value in the return game, but not certainly not as a fantasy relevant wide receiver. I do not think the same. I did not think the same of Tyler Lockett. He was and has certainly proved to be a very refined player. I even heard Luke Keegley praise Lockett for his ability to take the top off the defense 
and open up this whole Seattle offense during the pregame on Sunday. Yet even Dynasty Dan, who loves Lockett like he's his own son, has very valid concerns about Lockett's future with Russell Wilson as his quarterback. Now Crowder, on the other hand, has a QB with pocket presence in Kirk Cousins, and he figures to be locked in with Washington. Crowder's ability to get open in a variety of ways continues to amaze uh, He does it in the short game. He, he's able to get downfield, and, and he's obviously able to use his, his speed and uh, kind of uses his height to his advantage. He's able to get down for some balls that people aren't necessarily able to, uh, to recover in time to, to cover him. Um, the numbers for Lockett and Crowder are very similar. Lockett holds an advantage in yards per catch, and Crowder has played about eight more more of his team snaps. On paper, most would probably prefer Lockett. With Deshaun Jackson and Pierre Garçon, both 29 as opposed to Doug Baldwin and Jervain Curse being 27 and 25 respectively, you got to like Crowder's chances at a snap increase over the coming years better than Lockett. Then there's the matter of ADP. According to our friend uh, Justin Barlow, uh, who, by the way, is probably going to be on our podcast next week, our friend Justin Barlow at the FFCouchCoach.com. Uh, Tyler Lockett has gone to the end of the fourth round in Dynasty Startups that ended that started startup drafts that started the draft started after this 2015 season. So already a couple weeks into the year, people are doing startups, and Tyler Lockett has gone at the end of fourth and a couple of theirs already, uh, while Crowder has gone in the 11th. Now, last summer, Lockett was a second- to third-round rookie draft pick and a 13th-rounder in startups. Meanwhile, Crowder went virtually undrafted in both formats. That smells like value to me, especially when you consider that they produced similar numbers and the fact that Seattle will be getting Jimmy Graham back next season. Nick, what do you got for me? Well, the biggest reason I would take Tyler Lockett over Crowder is the ceiling. At five foot eight, Crowder will never be anything more than a slot receiver. You know, he'll have a big game here and there, but he likely won't ever be consistent enough to trust. Uh, well, Lockett at five foot ten isn't a whole lot bigger, but we've at least seen other players his size thrive as starters in this league. You know, of course, uh, Lockett's supporters all point to Antonio Brown's success, but that's setting the bar too high. I mean, really, Brown is the best receiver in the NFL right now. It's unlikely that uh, that Kevin Lockett ever reaches that level. But I can see Kevin Lockett possibly having a Santana Moss-like career. Moss, who is also 5'10", went over 700 yards every year from 2003 through, 20, uh, to, through 2010 and four times went over 1,000 yards. I believe Lockett is also in a better situation. You know, some would argue that Seattle's offense limits its production, but I think that might be a little bit of an outdated view. After Week 10, Seattle scored 29 or more points in seven of their eight final games, and they have become a borderline high-powered passing-based offense. And it's an offense that suits his skill set with a head coach who has as much job security as is possible in the NFL, whereas Crowder, who has carved a nice niche in Jay Gruden's offense, could find himself with a new head coach in 2017 if Kirk Cousins turns out to be a one-year wonder. Uh, Lockett also has a much stronger finish to 2015. From from week 11 on, he was over 30 yards every week, three games over 70 yards, uh, one game over 100 yards, and scored a touchdown, receiving touchdowns in four games, two games with two touchdowns. Crowder over that same span only topped 30 yards once and only had one score. So no doubt about it, Lockett's got to be the choice. Okay. Uh, he makes some very, very good arguments, but I just I think the fact that Washington seems a little bit more committed to the pass. I know I know Seattle turned a different leaf, but I think that was just because their their running back situation was 
well, it was Bryce Brown, I guess you would say. Um, it just wasn't very, uh, very fluid. Um, they're rumored to be 100% com- committed to cutting ties with Marshawn Lynch. And of course the Raiders are interested. Please know I say to that, but, uh, um, I, I think, I think you'll, I don't think you're going to see that very same thing from Seattle next year. I think, I think we're going to see the Thomas Rawls show as the pace setter, which obviously could help the receiving game, but I think you're going to see a, bit, a little bit more of that. It's nice to know that they can do that, but I think that was just kind of more out of necessity uh, this season. You know, we talked we've talked extensively about that over the last couple of weeks with Doug Baldwin and his future going forward. So, I guess I guess we'll see what happens there. Um, some dynasty trade analysis: um, T.J. Yeldon and Devin Funches for Eric Decker and Latavius Murray. What are your thoughts there, Nick? Uh, I like the side that picked up Yeldon and Funches. Uh, Funches, we saw towards the end of the season, the regular season, him starting to be a little bit more active in that Carolina offense, and we all know T.J. Yeldon's the, the lead back there in Jacksonville. Uh, Eric Decker, his production scares me a little bit moving forward. He's not getting any younger. His counterpart, uh, Brandon Marshall, is also kind of getting older. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, who knows how long he's going to continue to be productive. So there's a little bit more red side. I think I like Funches' future a lot better moving forward, and that's uh, that's the tiebreaker. Yeah, and I was, I was really hoping you would say, you maybe you can say this about the next trade, but I was really hoping you would say, me, you know, maybe if you're a couple of players away from a championship this year, that the the Decker Murray side would certainly help. But uh, if you're you're rebuilding and you want to keep that uh, that dynasty team solid, definitely Yeldon and, and Funches is the way to go. I think um, I think I saw in Pro Football Reference that. Funches is one of only like 15 receivers in NFL history to have over 400 yards receiving at the age of 21. I know that's a pretty random list, but uh, Mari Cooper is on that list. Randy Moss is on that list. Sammy Watkins is on that list. So it's, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice name list. There's some older guys on there too. Um, Of course, Randy Moss had 1300 yards that year, but uh, uh, yeah, that's a, it's. I think it's a pretty fair trade, but like I said, you're rebuilding. Definitely yield in Funches. If you're a couple pieces away, I think we could see Decker give it one more year, and I think uh, Murray could certainly peak next year as well. Uh, kind of an interesting one here: Cam Newton and James Winston, and a tooth and pick one point one zero. What are your thoughts there, Nick? Uh. To me, that's just not enough to get Cam Newton, who's you know proven this year that he's his top five quarterback every year moving forward, no matter who his weapons are. Because if he did it without Kelvin Benjamin this year, yeah, he, he's about as safe as it gets at the quarterback position. So, you know, Jameis Winston, he had a promising rookie year, but he's not to that elite level yet. And then a late first-round pick, yeah, that's not enough for me. Yeah, and um, does this – make you consider maybe more closely, Nick, what what Newton's value is? Like, what would you take for it, for Newton? Um, well, with Winston, it would have to be a top five pick, I think, and Jameis Winston mm-hmm. for me to consider it. And I'd have to be have another solid quarterback on my roster. Mm-hmm. One thing I really think to consider – I, I like I said I've liked the defensive guys in this draft, but I think there's maybe like you know maybe four like last year maybe four really elite guys and we'll 
you know, books still out and Kevin White and obviously Melvin Gordon. But I think there's really four top guys that everybody's going to want in this draft. And uh, beyond that, a, a first round pick is not going to be, I don't think, very very special. So we'll see how we'll see how that works out. Maybe you can hold on to your picks and uh, or maybe trade back and get a get a high high pick. Uh, next year when uh, Mr. Leonard Fournette and Christian McCaffrey come out. So keep that in, uh, keep that in mind. I think I said that same thing in the question and answer a couple of weeks ago, but uh, uh, Nick, did you happen to see the DFW 36 trade that came, came across the wire this morning? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, DeAndre Levy for Kiko Alonso. So injured versus injury risk. <laughs> any, any thoughts there in the, that IDP swap? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty even. I mean, they're both great players when they're healthy, and like you said, huge injury concerns with both of them. Hopefully, Levy missing pretty much all of this year, except for like a game or two. Hopefully, he'll be able to come back healthy next year. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's I, – I, I don't know. We'll see, you know, obviously with uh, Jim Swartz in town in Denver, maybe that person's really liking what they're going to do with – Alonzo there, so maybe they maybe they figure they'll keep him. They'll they'll, they'll get him while his uh, value's down and trading Levy, who was you know like let's not forget, though he missed like Nick said most of the season, he was an absolute beast the year before. Same thing with Alonzo pre-injury. So we'll see. That's an interesting swap to say the least. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it as I just saw it and Nick just saw Herbie say it too. So. Um, got some prospect profiles for you here. Quarterback and a free safety, uh, Jacoby Brissett. Uh, he is quarterback of the NC State Wolfpack. Six foot four, two thirty-five. Really good size there. Uh, great pocket poise, uh, but he does understand when the moment requires him to tuck and run. He does not do it very often though. Um, he has a good but not elite arm. Nice touch passer, spot thrower. Uh, needs to go through his progressions a little bit more and realize there's two sides of the field. He does really seem to shade one side of the field, and maybe that's where his uh, better receivers are there in that offense. But uh, Also, with Brissett being an African-American quarterback, um, it's very easy, and especially considering his size, to compare him to a guy like Cam Newton. Uh, yet he is not a, a runner like Newton. Like I said, he runs out of necessity if he needs to, and he does understand that he needs to scramble. But he's not—he's not a runner like Newton has been. He's not a guy that's going to run for five or six touchdowns every year like Newton has done. So um, it's, he is very hard to bring down in the pocket, though, which actually makes me, reminds me a little bit of Big Ben and kind of James Winston. It's both of those guys in his game. I'm not saying he's going to be on that level because he's certainly like a a fifth round flyer type of guy. Um, seems. That kind of seems spot on. Uh, teams like the Bills, Jets, and Cardinals certainly should consider uh, Brissett as a project moving forward. Any questions there about uh, Jacoby Brissett, Nick? Um, how was his surrounding talent there at NC State? Did he have a lot of weapons to work with, or was he kind of putting the team on his shoulders? Um, not, yeah, not a lot. Not a lot of weapons there to work with there. Um, um, I there's not. You know, there's not a whole lot of prospects on that on that team, so I guess I, I couldn't I couldn't say that because I'm really just looking at prospects nowadays. But um, yeah, like I said, he maybe had a couple a couple receivers that he really trusted. Why he kind of shaded to that side, but uh, he 
he certainly looks like to be a, a warrior. And you like you watch games like where, where he played against Florida State, where he, they're obviously uh, outmatched, and he he certainly looked uh, looked pretty good there. So um, even even though they didn't win, you know, he was able to keep his team close and uh, in the game. And I like you know maybe more of a a better comparison. I don't want to pigeonhole him with it. But uh, you look at uh, what Logan Thomas was able to do that last year. You know he's he was more drafted, I think, out of size, and I think maybe the the intrigue of Brissett size is going to help is going to help him as well. And I think once if teams let you know just give him a chance to develop under, like I said, a guy like Carson Palmer, uh, Fitzpatrick, or even Tyrod Taylor, I think you can see some uh, certainly see some good things out of him there. So. Um, Next person I want to talk about is uh, Darian Thompson. Uh, he's a free safety, uh, Boise State Broncos. Uh, takes really good pursuit angles um, and is a strong tackler. He he also tackles. I think uh, he's a smart tackler. He tackles like in the correct technical way. Uh, he kind of attacks the upper leg, which I really like. Just to see, you know, I'm not seeing these Landon Collins, but it's just really what intrigued me about Landon Collins is how these guys, you know, they don't try to hit people high. They don't try to go flashy. They just know how to tackle, and they just do it in the in the exact way that you should and the way that they're taught. Um, he does play a little bit better in zone coverage, but uh, he won't kill you in man-to-man. He does seem to kind of strive on desperate situations, and he has the moves to do so and back up his game there as well. Um, I see Thompson as kind of a mid-second to third-round guy who should definitely, who you should definitely consider in your rookie draft around four and beyond. I think he's got a bright future, uh, very well-versed in defending pass-happy schemes coming from the wide-open Mountain West. Um, it's, it's not game, but one of the games that I really enjoyed uh, just watching the film by him on draft breakdown was him against uh, – uh, Nevada from 2013, Cody Fajardo there, just a, just a like a 90 point affair with those two teams, and it was just a lot of a lot of interesting plays and a lot of good plays by him. But, but like I said, probably not his best film, but it'll just some good film to watch and see how he reacts to uh, to some some good and bad there. So uh, teams like the Raiders, the Giants, and Panthers should consider Thompson as kind of a, a single high chopper. It's certainly profiles as a uh, as a free safety so uh, um and i think he could be an in the box type of guy one thing that time and time again i was impressed by with his film is even though he's free safety and he's you know 10 to 15 yards 15 yards away um from the from the line of scrimmage he um is able to Still, at the moment of the snap, he's still able to just close the gap and get to the line of scrimmage, and I, I was really, really impressed by that. So, any questions there on Thompson? Well, you mentioned how good of a tackler he is, so it's uh, and you say that he could switch to being an in the box safety. Do you think that would be a switch out of necessity, like due to maybe a lack of speed? Do you think he's fast enough and rangy enough to be free safety in the NFL? He is, and you know he's six two two twelve, so that's not too small to be an in-the-box guy. I think Landon Collins is maybe about uh, an inch shorter than that, probably about 20 pounds heavier. So, um, but you don't, 
what I was really surprised when I saw his specs after seeing him on the field, and that's in the Mountain West. So he's certainly not a, a huge, brick-framed, muscular guy. So, well, well, that'll be interesting to see where he goes. But I think in the right scheme, he certainly he has the speed, most definitely, to play that uh, that single high free safety and and be kind of the uh, the backup there. So, um, we're gonna do Nick Rance, and then we're gonna end this podcast and start another one because Chuck can't call in because I set the timer wrong. So we're gonna, if we're going we're gonna to do Nick Rance here, something that we do each and every week, and then you're going to have to download the next podcast if you're listening. And I'm very sorry about that, but it'll just be a little, a little short, a short jobby there with Mr. Chuck Podiski. So uh, Nick, Nick Rance, we do this each and every week. It's where we're, uh, I just give my co-host the chance to kind of rant about something that's uh, bothering him. Uh, Ron is mine. So, uh, Nick, what do you got for us? Well, the Eagles named Doug Peterson. Uh, the Eagles named Doug Peterson the new head coach, and as a Skins fan, I just love it. So our division rival decided a few years ago that Andy Reid and his system weren't good enough to win championship, so they parted ways with him and replaced him with Chip Kelly, who in three years got rid of all the pieces that fit Andy Reid's scheme, Then the organization, after one down year, decides, no, wait, we want Andy Reid back. Uh, Of course, he's now in Kansas City as a head coach, so we'll hire his offensive coordinator, even though his system never won a title and their current players don't fit the scheme. I I don't get it. Plus, it's not like Kansas City had a super high-powered offense under Peterson and Reid the last few years. You know, maybe Philadelphia should have looked at Dallas and hired their offensive coordinator. At least he'd know how to use DeMarco Murray properly. But, you know, now I, I thought I thought they were too hasty when they fired Chip Kelly, but choosing Peterson as his replacement was just even more of a head-scratcher to me. What did you think about that, Josh? Um, yeah, it doesn't seem – it seems a little conservative uh, for Philly. I mean, I just – I don't – I don't necessarily understand it either. Um, but, you know, if they're able to get that running game going, they certainly have running back talent on that team. Would you agree there, Nick? Oh, definitely. They've got probably four okay. solid running backs if you include Kenyon Barner. So maybe, you know, if he can get that going like they like they had going in Kansas City, and I know um, Eric Bieniemy was more more of a part of that there, being the running back coach. And I can't believe he didn't get the OC job in KC over Brad Childress. Come on, guys. Um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, an interesting move. But we'll see. I mean, I, I, are you really that concerned that the Eagles could be bad, Nick? Uh, I yeah, <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of faith in him moving forward, especially at least for the first year. I think it's going to take some time to you know switch the pieces around and get personnel in that fits the fits the old scheme again. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Okay, so like I said, Nick, we're gonna I'm gonna hang up, text you in, in a minute when I say time when I say it's ready to go, and then you'll call back. All right, we're gonna I, I think we I think we can do this, and I, if, right, if not, it you. is completely my fault. All right. Thank you, folks. Please download the ATS picks because we're going to make you some money. You're going to crush your bookie. So we'll be right back. Download the next podcast. Thank you, and be right back.